0: Well, this morning, we're starting out the section where we look at the Son of Man coming to seek. We're going to look at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30, as we see in Luke's gospel, uh, the narrative of Jesus' first and his last sermon in Nazareth. This is the only place you'll find in the gospels, this story of Jesus at the synagogue in Nazareth, which was his hometown. It's the only time anywhere in the gospels you find Jesus in his hometown presenting himself as the Messiah. The reason we're going to start off in Luke chapter 4 is I have a a theory that that goes something like this. There are lots and lots of people who are around the church, around in Jesus' day, around the synagogue, who, who hear the Word of God, who maybe even think that they've applied it to their own lives, who perhaps have missed the true significance of what it means to have a relationship with God. I think there are lots of people that maybe even unbeknownst to them, have rejected Jesus as Savior and Lord. And this is, a, this is a passage that talks about a group of people that reject Christ. And I don't want to, to to dwell on that, but I rather want to use it as a springboard to ask the question for myself and to ask the question for all of us this morning is, where are we in our relationship with Jesus? Do we truly understand what it means to have him as Savior and Lord in our lives. Are we convinced of that not only in an intellectual way or saying, yeah, I get the idea that that Jesus is is the Lord, but actually that we've embraced it and it becomes the central truth in our lives. So that's what we're going to discuss as Jesus seeks to share uh, his truth with us this morning. So Luke chapter four, beginning of verse 16 and reading through verse 30, hear the word of God. Speaking about Jesus, Luke writes, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, in those days, the preacher, after he read the scripture, sat down to preach. So Jesus is in the position of being the preacher on that particular Sabbath uh, when he was at the synagogue. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? But only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst... He went on his way. This is the reign of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, look at the pages of Luke's gospel this morning, we see a really bad response to a really good sermon. But Lord, it's easy for us to, to sit back 2,000 years later and and judge a group of people who we think reacted in the wrong way without ever examining our own hearts. Father, it's easy to look at the faults of others. It's a little more challenging to really turn the mirror inward and see what's there. Father, I pray that that's what we would do this morning. I pray that that's what you would do, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would work the miraculous work that you do that opens the eyes of our hearts. We have sung that, Lord, but I pray that that we would actually make that a prayer right now, that each one of us, whether we call ourselves a disciple of Jesus or not, whether it's our first time in church or whether we've been in church all of our lives, would simply say, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. Not my spouse, not my friend, not the person sitting in front of me or behind me, but Lord, open the eyes of my heart. Father, as the preacher this morning, I ask that you would do that in my life, that you would forgive my sin, that it wouldn't stand in the way of what you want to say to us. That Holy Spirit, you would work in this place. And Jesus, you would come and be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. I want to make four observations about this passage, and I want to ask four questions. And what I'm trying to do is simplify uh, or, or make plain uh, what's going on in this particular passage as it applies to you and me this morning because I think we can we can skip over it pretty quickly and make some assumptions that perhaps we ought not make and so I want to maybe dig just a little bit uh, into these verses and I want to start in verses 18 and 19 which is the quote out of the prophet Isaiah and I want to ask you this question do you see in these verses an insult or do you see an opportunity Do you see an insult or an opportunity listen to verses 18 and 19. He takes the scroll, was, uh, the prophet Isaiah had written, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you just look at that as as a passing glance, you'd have to say, this is really great news of hope. Whether you're a Christian or not this morning, if you look at words like that and just even take them out of their context and say, whoever's talking and, and wh- to whomever he's, he's speaking to, he's offering really good news, liberty to the captives, uh, setting, uh, sight, giving sight to the blind, setting free those who are oppressed, and whatever the, the year of the Lord's favor is, that sounds like a really great thing. And I would agree with you that at first glance, it certainly looks like good news. Whoever is speaking, whoever about the author or the prophet Isaiah is speaking, says that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now that's that's a way of saying that I am the Messiah. (laughs) Whoever Isaiah was crediting these words to is the person that God is sending into the world to be his representative. So this person is not just a preacher, he's not just a a Sunday school teacher, he's not just a, a prophet, but he is in fact the personification of God. And so the Spirit of the Lord is upon the Messiah to proclaim all of this good news, which wraps up with with the year of the Lord's favor, Uh, which in in the Old Testament uh, Israel, the year of the Lord's favor came every 49 years. The nation of Israel was to set aside the 49th year where they had a year-long party, a year-long celebration, and that all debts were forgiven. And so if you you found yourself in a bad way financially in that 49th year, you were set free. And all of that pointed to God's graciousness towards his people. And so as we look at this, it looks like it's great news. And I also want to, uh, I want to point us to Charles Wesley as he uh, wrote a hymn in response to uh, God's grace and God's mercy and God's goodness, which kind of reinforces this as really being great news. Uh, we sing this song from time to time at Green Tree. It's called, And Can It Be? Uh, and Wesley wrote it. And the third verse, which we have sung many times, goes like this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Now, that's, that's a great verse. It speaks about the, the freedom that Wesley experienced when he came to meet Christ. But in order for this to be good news, friends, you've got to understand that you have a problem. <laughs> You have to put yourself as the recipient of this message The prophet isaiah and the messiah are not talking to someone else But rather they're talking to those who are spiritually blind who are spiritually poor who are spiritually oppressed In short, they're talking to people who need a messiah And if you're listening to this message and you're saying you know what jesus might be a nice guy And he might have said some really good things and that sermon on the mount sounded pretty cool But I don't really need a savior then you should be insulted by these words Because these words claim without apology that you have a serious spiritual problem on your hands. These verses claim that you are sick and blind and oppressed and poor because of your sinful choices and that you need a redeemer. I look at it this way. It's kind of like, you know, the good news you get when you go to the doctor and you've had your checkup and you sit down with the doctor and the doctor begins to tell you how wonderful it is that we have great treatments for cancer these days. That can only be good news if the next sentence out of his mouth is, and by the way, I've got some bad news to tell you about your health. The starting point for Jesus' message is that we have a serious problem on our hands. It assumes that we are spiritually poor and captive and blind and oppressed, needing a Savior. And the question I have to ask myself as I look at this text is simply this. Does that passage describe me? Am I truly that bad off spiritually? And how would I know if that were true about my life? Well, I want to take you to just a couple of passages. I'm not going to put them on the screen. But the Apostle Paul in two different places, in Romans chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 5, he does it in several other places, but I'm going to use those this morning as examples, talks about the results of people who are blind and oppressed spiritually, who are spiritually poor, who have lost their way. And he talks about it in the manner in which he describes the type of behavior that comes out of their lives. And here's what he says. "'They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents.' Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's the Romans 1 passage. Galatians 5 says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You listen to that list, and you go, well, I've never practiced sorcery. I've never murdered anyone. Certainly, I can't be that bad off. I, I really probably am not the person to whom Elijah, or Elijah excuse me, who, to whom Isaiah is writing. But if you look at this list, it gets down to some, some pretty obvious things in my life, and I think probably in your life. Have You ever had a fit of anger? You ever lost your temper with someone? Guess what? You're in this list. Rivalries. Have you ever have you ever fought against someone? Have you ever tried to make your point win out the day? Divisions. Have you ever caused division in a group of people? Have you ever been envious about another person, that they have something that, that you think really uh, ought to have been given to you? Then you're on this list. Have you ever had too much to drink? Have you ever lost your patience? Have you ever been deceitful? Have you ever told even a little white lie? Then friends, you're on this list. Um, I am on this list. We are the people to whom the prophet Isaiah is speaking. And our first step in understanding what it means to truly have a relationship with God means that we need to see this as an opportunity and not an insult. But if you see yourself this morning as one who has no spiritual need and has no need for healing, then you ought to be greatly insulted by the fact that Isaiah thinks that you have a big problem. So the first question, does it describe me or do I reject that notion? The second question is found in verses 20 and 21, where do we see a salvation pretended or a salvation personified? Verse 20 says this, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says, the long-awaited day has dawned. For 2,000 years, people have been looking forward to, through the promises of God, the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus sits down in the synagogue, and he looks at everybody in this little town of Nazareth, and he says, that day has arrived. There's no longer a waiting period. 2,000 years of promises and hope are now at hand. There's no more delay. Now, how could Jesus possibly know that the Messiah had come unless he was speaking about himself. And that's exactly what Jesus is claiming. Jesus is claiming Messiahship. He's claiming to be the one to whom Isaiah pointed and said, there's coming a day when a special one will arrive, and he will set the people free, and he will offer salvation and hope. And Jesus says, you want to know what that was all about, what Isaiah was writing about? Look at me, because today's the day, and I am the one who is the Messiah. The only way Jesus could know that that prophecy was being fulfilled So if he claimed to be the one in which it found its fulfillment, he had to have some inside information. I remember back in uh, the mid-1980s, I was talking to a friend about this this week. In 87, there's a book that was published, and maybe you bought it, and maybe you read it. It was written by a Christian author, and the title of the book was 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. I don't know if you you remember reading that book, and if he was right, we have an even bigger problem than we think we have. Um, I don't think he was, but a lot of people bought that book, and, and this guy, well-intentioned, claimed to have an inside track. He had worked the numbers and the verses, and he figured it all out, and he looked at history and the headlines, and he knew that Jesus was coming back in 1988. He had, he had that inside information. Now, what was more astounding was not the fact that people bought that book, but that people bought the follow-up, and I'm not making this up. 89 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1989. I'm not kidding you. That You can go buy that book on eBay. <laughs> it's probably the only place you can find it. He claimed to have some kind of insight. He claimed to have some kind of inside track where he knew something that none of the rest of us knew. Jesus was saying to the people in Nazareth, and he's saying to you and me today, let me tell you something about the inside track. Let me tell you about the one to whom you can look to for salvation. I am the Messiah. I'm the one about whom Isaiah and all of the other prophets have written. You need to believe that I have come to set you free. So not only do I have to grapple with the question of does Isaiah describe me in my sinful nature, but I also have to grapple with the fact that Jesus comes promising to be the one who can set me free from that, promising to be the one who can give me new life. And the question I have to ask is, do I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, pure and simple? Is Jesus the Messiah? Have I put my faith in him? It's the second point. The third one is this. The, the, the congregation that was gathered in that uh, synagogue on that particular day, went on an emotional and spiritual journey that I call a journey from wow to wondering. From wow to wondering. Look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Now, what exactly is going on here? Well, if you, if you look at Jesus' preaching ministry throughout his whole life, you see kind of a common thread that's woven through the people's reaction to Jesus as he preaches. The first reaction I, I call enthusiasm. People hear it and they go, man, wow, that's, that's really amazing. Did you hear that? And it grabs their attention. Uh, and the, you, you read verses that say they thought that he was teaching with authority like none of the other leaders of that particular day. There also tends to be an interest. People are truly, genuinely interested. The crowds are coming in by the thousands, and they're sitting, and they're listening to his teaching for hours. They're not distracted. They're not bored. They're, not, they're paying attention, and they're wrapped up in his message. It tends to go from an enthusiasm and an interest to also an amazement. People look at the, at the mighty works that Jesus had been doing, and they look at the teaching, and they go, this truly is something we've never seen before in all of our lives. But ultimately, if people listen long enough and pay attention carefully enough, for the most part, people ultimately reject Christ. At the end of the day, the vast majority of the crowds, if not all of the crowds, rejected Jesus' claim to be Messiah and rejected the notion that they had a serious spiritual problem that only he could address. Mark probably puts this better in in Mark chapter 6. I'm going to put these verses uh, up on the screen. This is the same experience in the life of Jesus. And it says, On the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. When they first heard Jesus' teach, they were like, wow, this is amazing. And then they began to settle in and listen carefully to what he was saying and his addressing their spiritual need, and they began to be offended. They said, wait a minute. This is the carpenter's son. We've known this guy since he was a little baby. Think about it. Jesus was in his hometown. And he was preaching to his aunts and his uncles and his cousins and his neighbors and his own family. Mary was probably sitting there with the brothers and the sisters. And the people were gathered around him. Were all people that had known him. And they began to say, who do you think you are? Ultimately, that was the response that Jesus had to his earthly ministry. If you want to sum up the response to Jesus, it simply could be put in that sentence. Who, Jesus, do you think you are? Now, you and I are maybe a little bit more polite today. We might not come right out and say it. But friends, if I come to the conclusion that I don't have a spiritual problem, and I come to the conclusion that Jesus is not the Messiah, I'm saying exactly the same thing. And I've gone from wow to wondering, but wondering in a critical way that rejects the lordship of Jesus. And Jesus exposes us. He exposes their doubt and he exposes their unbelief. In verse 23, Jesus says this, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. hear what they're saying? They're saying, Jesus, we have heard that you've done some amazing things. This was probably about a, a year into the ministry life of Jesus, the public ministry life. He's healed people. He's, he's probably already, you know, done some of the miraculous works uh, that he had been sent to do. And they had heard about him. He hadn't been to Nazareth yet. They had heard, you know, hey, there were a lot of people fed in that particular place. So there were, there were demons that were cast out of those folks, or these people were, were healed. That's pretty amazing. But when Jesus comes, they don't say, wow, Lord, it's so cool that you're doing all this stuff. This is so amazing that we want you to do it here because we believe in you, but rather it's with arms folded and a critical spirit. Come on, Jesus, if, you're, if you really want us to believe, then you better prove it to us. They're doubting his claims. But that goes beyond doubt to unbelief. And Jesus exposes that when he compares them to the people of Old Testament Israel. In verses 24 and following, it says this. He says, truly, I say to you, a prophet is not acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, and a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus uses these Old Testament stories from First uh, Kings seventeen and Second Kings chapter five to say to the people sitting in the synagogue, you guys think that because you're Jewish, that you have all of this this access to God, and that God God loves you because of who you are, and just because you have have the name Israelite, and you don't care a whit about how you live, and and you don't care at all about honoring God with your life, you rebel against Him just as they did in those days. And what you need to understand is that the Gentiles have more faith than you do, even though you're supposed to be the guys who get it. Jesus confronts their unbelief and he exposes it. Part of us coming to Christ needs to be because our unbelief is exposed. And you wonder how the people in the synagogue were feeling. (laughs) Okay, Jesus, you you claim through Isaiah that we have a problem. We'll, we'll listen to you for a little while longer. Okay, you got my attention. I'm not quite there yet, but what else? Oh, now you're telling me that you're the Messiah. Well, who do you think you are? Oh, now you're telling me I don't believe at all? Well, then I don't want to have anything to do with you. Again, we may paint it in more polite words, but friends, that's a reaction that a lot of us have to Christ. We may be willing to be around the church. We may be willing to even be involved in some kind of ministry. But there are probably many of us that have this wondering, skeptical, down-deep-inside attitude that says, I'm really not buying this lordship of Jesus. Well, where does that leave us? If we see it as an insult, if we see it as a pretend salvation, and we really are skeptical about it, what's the end result of that decision? Well, we see that in verses 28 and 29. When they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled excuse me, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to a brow of a hill on which the town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. The reaction to the lordship of Jesus, the reaction to Jesus saying, you have an eternal problem, but you know what? God has sent me to help clear all that up, to save you, to restore you to spiritual health, to bring you into the true kingdom of God. And their result, their reaction was to say, let's toss him off a cliff. Again, friends, we probably pride ourselves in not having that kind of reaction, but I want to suggest to you, even a, even a quiet, disbelieving heart is a heart that is violent, rea- violently reacting in a negative way to the kingdom of God. I have to ask myself, what is my response to Jesus' sermon? It might not be a physical violence, but in my heart, there may be a stirring or a churning that says, I refuse to bend the knee. I refuse to accept the fact that Jesus is who he claims to be. And I wanna be a nice guy and I wanna go to church and do all those kind of nice things and moral things, but I am going to be the Lord of my own life. Friends, that's no different than if Jesus were here physically and we took him up to the top of the roof of the building and we threw him off. Rejection is rejection is rejection. Rejection. But there's another response. There's another response that leads to life. And as we see the pages of Luke unfolding, we will find person after person after person, the sick, the disenfranchised, the broken, the rebellious, the angry, the hurting, who when they come confronted with the claims of Jesus Christ, put their faith in him. This morning, that's what I'm asking you to do. That's what I'm expecting of myself that our hope and our faith would be placed in the one who came to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah. And my prayer for all of us is that we see opportunity in these words and not insult, that we see the personification of salvation in Jesus Christ and in his life and in his ministry and his death on the cross and his eventual resurrection. And that our response to this promise that even though we're eternally lost, we can be found and healed and be restored to sight and health and prosperity spiritually in the gospel should cause us to go, wow, that is amazing. And ultimately to respond to Jesus' sermon by saying, I believe. I surrender to you, Jesus. I do have a problem and you are the solution. And my trust and my hope is in you alone. How will we respond? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you gave to the prophet Isaiah confrontational words, even though on the surface, they sound very flowery. The power behind those words speak to the spiritual captivity in which we find ourselves. Lord, if if we are apart from Christ, we may think we're intellectual. We may think that we are Person that knows and sees clearly, but we're ultimately blind and groping in the dark. But Father, you chose not to leave us there. You chose to offer salvation and hope that when the Messiah came, he would proclaim good news to the poor. He would set the captives free, that those of us who are spiritually blind could have sight. And those of us who have been oppressed by, uh, oppressed by sin and death and Satan, we could be set free from that. We can enjoy the, the eternity of the Lord's favor, not just the year of the Lord's favor. But, Father, it starts with us acknowledging we have a problem. And then it moves quickly to us understand that Jesus is the answer to that problem. That today, this scripture is fulfilled in our generation. That the same Lord who sat in the synagogue 2,000 years ago and proclaimed that good news is here among us this morning proclaiming that same good news and calling us to put our faith in him. Not just to wonder, not to to react critically and angry, but rather to, to fall to our knees and to respond in faith to the one who has given himself for us. Father, I don't know everybody in this room. I probably don't even know half the people in this room very well. But you know every one of us. You know why you brought us here this morning. You know what you wanted to say to us. So, Father, I simply give the reaction over to you. Whatever I've said that shouldn't have been said, Lord, let everybody forget it immediately. But what needs to stick? And perhaps for some, Father, it's the first time they've ever confessed their sin and confessed their need for Jesus and confessed that they want to believe in him. Father, I pray that you would do that work in their hearts. And for those of us who call ourselves disciples, Father, remind us, that it's by your grace, not by our goodness, but by your goodness that we are saved. Holy Spirit, come and do your work, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're going to do something a little different that we don't typically do at Green Tree. Occasionally, we'll, we'll have what, what they call an altar call. Uh, this morning, we simply want to give you a chance to respond. If you're sitting here going, you know, I've never put my faith in Christ. I, I've never seen it, that I have a spiritual problem, and now I get it. And I want to know Christ as my Savior and Lord. We want to give you a chance this morning uh, while we conclude the service to do that. The way we're going to do it is this. We're going to sing, uh, I think we have three songs, we're going to sing at the end of the service. And while we're singing, I'm going to ask all the elders and the pastors who are in the room, if you guys would just kind of go on the outside of the two aisles, just kind of go stand off to the side. Uh, you don't have to come down front. And if you're here this morning, you don't know Christ as your Savior, but you want to put your faith in Him, and we're not going to force you to walk all the way down front, but, but these folks will be standing by the side. And just go grab one of them, uh, and they'll be happy to talk with you and pray with you and introduce you to a relationship with Jesus Christ. If God's putting that on your heart this morning, don't hesitate. Uh, all, all of these folks are, are just like the rest of us. We all have struggled with sin. We, we all know that we're in the kingdom of God by his grace and not by what we've done. Uh, so, so let your guard down a little bit and humble yourself. Because God's speaking to you, and he wants you to put your faith in Christ this morning. So as we stand and sing, elders, if you guys would just uh, make your places, that would be great.